Hello from your favorite Grasslands PR team. This week we're back with another reason why these overlooked and underappreciated ecosystems are objectively the best biome. I'm Rachel. And I'm Nicole. And today we are just going to embrace little 12-year-old Nicole's passions of horses. Oh my god, really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's so funny because today I came in expecting an episode on mosquitoes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh gosh. Just, just wanted to keep you on your toes. I like it. We we are still doing so many mammals though. <laughs> I know, but I just got excited after last week's episode about horses and I had to follow that. Okay, okay. I understand. Um, okay, but first, uh, before we get into that, we want to mention that April is a special month in the land of podcasts because Podchaser is donating 25 cents to Meals on Wheels for every podcast review that is received on their site. So uh, yeah, no better time to make our day and help us out with a review. We'll put a link to the our Podchaser page. It's just a platform for leaving reviews and connecting with podcasts and their owners and hosts. So uh if you feel like leaving us a review there, uh, you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts as well, but they're not going to donate 25 cents to Meals on Wheels for your review like Podchaser is. So mm-hmm. bounce on over there and uh, make multiple people's days. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Are you ready to learn about horses? <laughs> I suppose. I, I never <laughs> went through a horse phase. Really? I don't think I did. Man, I had the only, okay, I hated Barbie growing up, but there was this Barbie horse game that was my jam. I don't remember anything about it. I just remember playing it all the time because it had horses in it. And I had like a horse racing game and like, yeah. I actually had that Barbie horse game. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. I remember like feeding him sugar cubes and stuff. Yeah, I don't. I literally don't remember what the purpose of the game was at all. Just that there was horses in it, and I just ran around and had fun with the horse. Like there is even a Lego game that came out like PS2 era, and it had a horse in it, and I just rode that horse around in this one area that you could ride the horse around in all the time. Like I remember, I was so excited because we you know, like walked across the bridge, it made like a different clop clop noise versus like the grass and like oh my gosh, that was just like the coolest thing. Again, <laughs> don't remember which Lego game it was. I just remember <laughs> the horse. <laughs> oh man. I love how all of your horse memories involve video games too. That seems also very <laughs> on brand. Right, right. I mean, I saw horses at like the zoo and at um Cowtown. Our okay. local, uh, you know, historical museum. But, like, yeah. I just, anytime there was a video game with a horse in it, like, I was sold. Didn't matter what it was about. <laughs> <laughs> you should play Witcher 3. Ride oh, a horse gosh. all over the continent, man. <laughs> You're so right. <laughs> okay, so, horses. <laughs> Non-video game horses. Mm. Okay, so I wanted to kind of talk about... Prehistoric horses, like very, very briefly, modern horses, the domestication of horses, and then a very special horse. I'm sure you know what it is, but um, yeah, the talkie we'll keep the horse. suspense up. No, shh, shh, shh. we'll keep the suspense up <laughs> for anyone who doesn't know somehow. Okay. Oh man. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay, so prehistoric horses. Uh, There is a lot of information out there on prehistoric horses. Please feel free to do your own research. But I just kind of wanted to talk about, you know, where they originated from. So do you know where they evolved? I have no idea. Was it North America? It was North America. Yay. Man. Okay. (laughs) Yep. So like, I think uh, kind of in the same time frame as camels, you know, as these grasslands were slowly becoming more prominent, horses were like, yeah, let's do it. And they became more and more prominent. They evolved into different species, all that fun stuff. And the first horse that like we could call a horse was called Eohippus or the Dawn Horse, which is just great. I love that name. It just sounds like a childhood video game horse. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, it does. You're not wrong. <laughs> and this horse was a browser rather than a grazer. So he ate leaves and bushes and things rather than grass. Like camels. Um, like camels, yeah, wild. And these guys are very small. They only stood about 50 centimeters or 20 inches high at the shoulder because <sighs> horses are always measured at the shoulder. And in horse people talk, that's five hands. <laughs> okay. And this guy, <laughs> hey, horse people are a special breed. It's, I, do you even know how big a hand is in horse? Speak. I, I'm, I'm assuming it's just a hand. I mean, kind of. It's, it's a very, it actually has a distinct measurement. Because, like, everybody's horse, everybody's hands are different sizes. So, like, a hand is four inches. Okay. I don't know why they don't just describe them in, like, feet or centimeters or inches. They always describe them in hands. <laughs> so extra. <laughs> a little bit. I'm sure there's some kind of a historical reason for it, but I didn't look into it. Yeah, that's the only explanation. <laughs> but the Eohippus, or Dawn Horse, had actually padded feet, and it had four hooves on each front foot and three on the back foot. Where's the pad? <laughs> in between, so like... Its toes had the hooves, and then, like, its palm had the pads. <laughs> yeah, so... Wait, so it's like a dog, but if its toenails were hooves. Sure. Yes. <laughs> I don't like that picture, but yes, essentially. <laughs> you liked the picture before it was described that way? <laughs> I mean, no, I was just trying not to think about it too much. But it was disturbing enough that I wanted to share it with you. <laughs> I will show you a picture of him real quick. Oh, no. Oh, that's less weird because it's walking <laughs> on its toes. I was I figured yes. it had a pad because it also stood on the pad at the same time as the hooves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of ancient horses had pads on its feet, but a lot of them didn't, like, actually use it by the time you, like, called them horses. So. Okay. But still, the four tiny little hooves are very strange. And this guy, he looks almost more like a small deer rather than a horse. Um, but mm. he is considered the first horse. So very handsome little gentleman with weird toes. And of course, having four hooves is different than modern horses mm -hmm. who only have one hoof. And But it's still the fingers. So the middle digit ended up becoming elongated in modern horses. And so they walk just on one toe. And they're constantly flipping you off. And I don't know. <laughs> it just cracks me up. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's interesting that on this uh, Dawn Horse, even there where it's got four fingers, that middle one is mm -hmm. still more stout and sturdy and bigger than the others. Yeah, it's still a little bit elongated and it's beefier for sure. So that that's the Eohippus. Like I said, from the Eohippus, we saw quite a bit of evolution to various different species. Horses then spread to Europe and South America. And after the Bering Land Bridge disappeared, the North American and South American horses actually went extinct. So then we only had horses in, you know, the old world. So it's kind of an interesting evolutionary line. And reminds me a lot, again, of camels. So... Yeah, did they go extinct um, around the time there were people living in North America? I guess they had to if it was after the Bering Land Bridge. Mm hmm. Yeah. And then, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, as settlers came to the New World, they brought horses back with them. Okay. But that brings us to modern horses. And horses are just wild creatures. They're too tall, they're too strong, they can easily kill you, and yet we put small children on their back just for giggles. And part of me kind of fears horses as an adult. Even <laughs> though as a child, I just thought they were so cute and friendly. I, I know better now. They can be kind of kind of intense. <laughs> but they have been a huge part of human culture for a really long time. And, you know, as 
horses were domesticated, we used them for a lot of different, you know, resources. We used them for meat. Um, some people have even used mare's milk as an alcoholic beverage called kumis. So Ooh. it's kind of cool. <laughs> um, and something hearkening, let's go back to anatomy for just a second, because I don't think a lot of people realize this. So when you look at a horse, that joint that is, you know, about halfway from the ground to their belly is not their knee. It is their wrist. And this true, this is true for like giraffes, camels. I forgot we were just talking about camels, goats, <laughs> sheep, all those guys. Of course, they all have two toes instead of the one toe like horse. But a lot of people think that that is their knee and it is not. So their fingers and their, the bones and what would we would call like their hand are very much elongated and they're just walking on that one toe or two toes in the case of those other animals. I'll add birds to that list too, because that's another birds one. Birds are weird too. <laughs> see, see like the backwards facing knee, but it's actually their, their wrist or ankle. Yeah. I love comparative anatomy. So just had to throw that in there. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So modern horses, we have the genus, EQs, which is which includes horses, donkeys, and zebras, so they're all very closely related. They can interbreed, and usually those offspring are not fertile. Do you know at least a couple of the seven living equines? Se- there's seven of them. There's seven species of equines. Are we including alive subspecies? Today. Nope. Okay. Um, the talkie. I mean, technically, they're all subspecies because they're all part of the same. Yeah, it, it's fine. Wait, what? The talkie. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> now I'm There's, there are a lot of subspecies when we talk about horses, but I'll, I'll break it down. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> the, the, the talkie horse. The, yes. Um, how do you say the, the Russian name? Or Shavalskis. Shavalskis. Yeah, or the pea horse all the same thing (laughs) cool what else zebras yes donkeys Mm -hmm. uh regular horses (laughs) i don't know what what to call them they're just horses Uh uh-huh do they have a like a common name (laughs) kind of the domestic horse domestic horse yeah Mm -hmm. okay um the 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 miniature horse (laughs) many horses are a breed of horse dang okay um wait if i only said like three horses four okay there's three there's three more there's seven total oh my gosh okay uh none of them are wild so let's think about this so i'll give you a hint no there's actually three okay go ahead (laughs) there's three species of zebra there's the gravy zebra the plain zebra Uh, zebra. okay Cool. So, those, so there's, there's three right three. there. So mm-hmm. I need one more, and that's going to be the other donkey species. I mean, yeah. <laughs> okay. There's two species of donkeys, three <laughs> species of zebra. Uh, that's five. Um, <laughs> and then Equus ferris, which is the wild horse, quote unquote. It's a feral horse. Yeah. It, inc- it actually includes domesticated horse. And the Shavalskis horse. Okay, so now you're switching your stands and saying that the Shavalskis or the Taki horse is a subspecies. So they're both subspecies of the same species, according to, you know, the powers that be. I know it's weird. What? Who, who, are, who are these powers? <laughs> I don't know. I don't ask questions like that. That's not my you, grade, you okay? should. Because, like, last time you... We're very willing to call it its own species. Mm-hmm. What changed? I said that the Shavalski's horse has never been domesticated, is what I said. Mm. <laughs> okay. Wait, hang on a second then, because that, that means the Shavalski's or the Taki horse is not the only wild horse. It is. No, there's zebras. Well, it depends on what you call. Yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> you're right. You're right. You're right. But zebras have also been domesticated, so, yeah, They have? And whenever we talk about, like, so those are the genus, 
that horses belong to. So like donkeys, mm-hmm. zebras, horses, horses. But when we talk about like horses, <laughs> then you just have the domesticated horse and the Shavalskis. So the <sighs> Shavalski is the only remaining wild horse. <laughs> okay. Horse people, why do you have to make everything about your animal different from every other animal? Because the I camel know. people are happy to say that every member of the genus Camelus is a camel. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh, okay. I I'm, I'm, I'm willing to play by their rules, I guess, this time. Stupid okay. horse people. Thank you. Ridiculous. Also, I forgot the Kiong. The Kiong is another uh, equine. So the African wild ass, which includes the domesticated donkey, all domesticated donkeys, because there's several different breeds. Okay. The onager, which is the Asiatic wild ass, the kiang, the grevy zebra, the plain zebra, the mountain zebra, and then equus ferris, which is the wild horse and the wild horse, quote unquote, which is domesticated horse and the Shavalsky's horse together. So mm. horse genetics are weird. <laughs> Okay. I'm I'm not happy about this, but I we know, can move I'm on. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, seven species that can all interbreed, yada yada yada. So how did we domesticate them? This is also a muddy muddy mess <laughs> that no one really knows. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so buckle in. <laughs> so There are many, many, many studies looking at modern horse DNA throughout the world. The maternal side of the DNA suggests a wide range of ancestral mares being used to make the modern horse, while paternal DNA shows very little variation. And this has kind of confused people for a long time, Um, but the most modern consensus that I could find was that there were just simply many, many mares used, but very few stallions. And, you know, wild horses are very, very wild. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And especially the stallions that are, you know, they're fighting to protect their, their herd and they just are hard to tame. So they took the few nice stallions that they could find and then lots of different mares from honestly all over the world and use those to create what we now call the domestic horse. Fascinating. Yes. And looking at all of the data that we currently have, it appears that horse domestication was not a single event. For a lot of domesticated animals, we can kind of point at, you know, this year or this time frame and this place was when it happened, but that is not true for horses. Hmm. And it's really more of several smaller events with wild horses being bred back to domestic stock to increase, you know, genetic diversity and to add in desired traits. So Western Eurasia appears to be the first area that modern horses were domesticated, more or less. Um, with even a domesticated a domestication event happening in the Iberian Peninsula, which is Spain and Portugal. Um, but all of those horses from that domesticated event actually went extinct, hmm. which is kind of interesting. So we believe that, you know, modern horses that we still have were domesticated in the Eurasian steppe in an area covering Ukraine to Kazakhstan. The trading of horses was very, very lucrative, so that's why we have a kind of unclear picture of exactly where it happened or when it happened, but we're guessing about 6,000 years ago. Wow, okay. So that's more recent than I expected. Yeah, same. Because they are such a huge part of, you know, human culture throughout time, but... I don't know. I guess they're just really hard to domesticate. (laughs) Yeah. Hard to chase down, I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah. Hard to chase horses when you don't have a horse. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So there was a really cool article that the conversation put forward uh, March of last year, and it broke down some of those, you know, domestication events and things like that. And one of the breakthroughs that scientists had when figuring out, like, you know, do these horse bones belong to a domesticated horse or a wild horse, 
was actually by looking at the horse's teeth. (laughs) Yeah. So they found that, you know, the halters that people used back then would have metal mouthpieces, and it led to very distinctive bit wear on their teeth. Oh, that kind of tooth analysis. Yeah. (laughs) That's really cool. I thought it was going to be more of like uh, an anatomical thing, not a wear and tear on the teeth thing. Yeah, I thought for sure it was going to be like, oh, their diet changed, so obviously they're they're domesticated now. But no, it was the wear on their teeth. Yeah, exactly. That's that's really cool. (laughs) I don't know why I'm geeking out about that so much, but it really tickled me. (laughs) No, it got me really excited too, so don't feel bad. (laughs) Look at us being excited about horse teeth. What is wrong with us? (laughs) (laughs) Nothing. Uh, We are perfect. (laughs) I don't even like horses, man. (laughs) Well, by the end of this, I hope you do. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And another, you know, issue when it comes to learning about early horses and early people that used these horses is that it's extremely difficult to follow nomadic people through, you know, archaeological perspective because they didn't have permanent structures. They didn't have, you know, burial sites or, you know, old structure walls or anything like that because they moved around constantly especially after horses you know became more part of their culture and they had to move in order to feed their herds so it's extremely difficult to learn about these people and these horses yeah i was gonna say um who who are these people like what what Um, group is this or do we even know so some of them have probably just don't exist anymore, but especially Mongolian cultures loved their horses and still do. And so, you know, some, the Hun Empire, the Mongol Empire, these really big nomadic groups that we associate with like warfare and things like that are also uh, people that we unfortunately don't know a lot about like we know a lot but we don't we don't know about their you know day-to-day activities the information that we know is more from accounts of nearby civilizations that were not nomadic so if they raided a village then that village would have you know an account of that happening (laughs) right but otherwise you know it's hard to track people that are constantly moving yeah that's so cool. I'm just now realizing how many nomadic groups there are uh, of mm-hmm. like indigenous cultures and how they're they're usually associated with big grassland regions. Oh yeah, and and I mean that's it's interesting, but it shouldn't be surprising because the animals that are there are also nomadic because right. grasslands can't support you know a big group of animal or people living in one place. (laughs) Mm -hmm. They, you know, they just can't. So it's interesting. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, the Hun and the Mongol Empire, I'll touch on them a little bit, but like, this is not my area of expertise Mm -hmm. by any stretch of the imagination. People spend their whole lives, you know, delving into this kind of stuff. But they really had, during their respective times, the Huns were before the Mongols, um, but they had total power over much of the steppe. And even, you know, especially with the Mongol Empire, through much of Europe and Asia, like they just completely dominated that entire landscape for a really long time because they had horses and those horses, you know, allowed them to move around and allowed them to overpower other people that did not have horses. And it wasn't until, you know, strong civilizations that started, you know, building walls and using, you know, more advanced weaponry that could overpower those horse armies that <laughs> those empires finally fell. Wow. Yeah. And a lot of those nomadic civilizations still exist, um, whether in the steppe or, you know, on the outskirts of it. But many of them were displaced, but as, you know, cities and agriculture took over and became the more dominant, you know, lifestyle. Mm. The Silk Road trading route was also largely maintained by, you know, horses, whether that's selling the horses or using the horses to help move stuff. Camels were also a huge part of that but who cares about them? Um, 
Oh, I expected a scream of indignation. Oh, I mean, I didn't want to interrupt the horses. I'm like, you know, I'm willing to let the horses have their moment. It should be (laughs) obvious that I protest this idea. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But that's just because I'm biased against horses. I never really Mm -hmm. found camels especially interesting before I researched them either. So (laughs) (laughs) it seems to me inarguable that camels are... (laughs) the more interesting animal, but I'm realizing how similar their history is. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I find that to be very interesting. So I'm, I'm going to walk back on that. I'm going to, I'm going to just say, yes, please tell us more about how cool horses are. Okay. I appreciate <laughs> that. The only reason you like horses are because they're kind of like camels. <laughs> yeah. It's fair. I'll <laughs> take it. Whatever I can take. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, So, like I said, a lot of these nomadic tribes and peoples were really, really hard to study, but recently there was a nomad site in Kazakhstan that was discovered, and it had a ton of horse bones and, you know, just very, very exciting find for anthropology. And again, they showed that wear pattern on the teeth, so we're pretty sure that they were domesticated. And there was even ceramic pieces of, like, pottery with evidence of horse milk in them. So people, yeah, like, we are pretty sure that this is, you know, domesticated horses. However. Oh, boy. In 2018, they kind of started looking at some of these old sites, specifically one in Bowtie, that they saw that these horse bones were not domesticated horses, but rather the bones of Taki, <gasps> the Pusowski's oh, horse. Oh, it's all coming together now. Okay, okay. Yes. So remember how last episode I was like, maybe Shavalskis aren't wild. We don't know. This was that study that kind of threw everything that we thought we knew about horses on its head. And this brought forth a lot of controversy that, you know, the talkie might not be the last remaining wild horse at all. Um, however, many scientists believe that the bowtie talkies were actually a failed domestication attempt. So <laughs> the talkie for now is still considered the last wild horse. And that's, of course, different than, like, the American Mustang or the Australian Brumby, which are escaped domesticated animals that have become feral. Okay. So, Oh, man, this is, like, the most interesting thing that's happened in a minute. <laughs> like, my head is reeling a little bit. Dude, <laughs> why do they think that it was a failed domestication attempt? Like, what evidence did they have that made them think that or suggest that is it because of like a combination of the information we have about their genetic history with the the fact that they found these remains or like was it something Mm -hmm. specific about the remains i think a large part of it and I, i don't know for sure but i believe that a large part of it is just that we haven't found talky bones and other such you know settings so you know, obviously you find them out in the wild everywhere, but as far as like in a human settlement like this, I think this is one of the only, if not the only examples of this. So, wow. Yeah. And even the, so the group that found the Bowtie site in 2018, they went back and did more study with them and were like, eh, sorry, we said that the Taki was never, is not actually wild we think that this was a failed domestication attempt. Okay. So, so even the original yeah. group that mm-hmm. made that discovery Correct. kind of agrees yeah. with that. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Ooh, that is nice. so cool, though. Mm-hmm. Man, and now we're going to have to keep an eye out for any future discoveries. I wonder if they're going to go back and look at other horse remains they found at sites and, mm-hmm. like, double-check that they were, in fact, domestic horses and not the talkie horse. Yeah. It'd be interesting. And yeah, there's a lot of controversy behind this because the talkie is very much revered and 
is like a sacred animal. Um, mm. Taki is the Mongolian word for the Savalsky's horse, and it means spirit or worthy of worship. So they, wow. you know, this horse is extremely important to the people of this area. You don't ride the Taki or stable it. You know, it's it's wild. Yeah, I just love that. It makes sense to me that an animal that maybe there even was a domestication attempt and it just Mm -hmm. could not be domesticated, like even more reason to consider it such like a wild spirit. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So let's talk more about the beautiful Taki. (laughs) I personally first fell in love with the Taki back in 2001 (laughs) when I first heard about them in the wonderful video game, Zoo Tycoon. <laughs> so, so, once again, everything video is games. video games. It's all video games. I <laughs> love this episode just because of this. <laughs> uh, I'm so glad. I'm, and they yeah. say video games rot your brain, but you can learn stuff from them. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yes. Just this week. Oh, never mind. <laughs> oh, gosh. What? Oh, no, I'm just, you know, I've played a lot of Stardew Valley and I'm I'm learning uh-huh. a lot about fish. <laughs> I don't I don't care about fish at all, but I learned uh-huh. that sturgeon can live to be 150 years old because I was trying to catch them in the mountain lake and uh I was like, "Wow. All right, fish. Sometimes you're cool." <laughs> yes, fish are so cool. Shut up. And so are video games. Uh, <sighs> but I digress. <laughs> One of the best sources by far for information on the Taki um, is the International Taki Group. Their website is savethewildhorse.org. I mentioned this last week. Um, But just a quick description of them if you've never seen one. The Taki is like this beautiful, rich brown color on their head, neck, and back, which slowly fades to kind of a creamy off-white color on their sides and on their belly. Their legs also have some brown on them and sometimes will have striping, which is very indicative of like ancient wild horses. Hmm. And their manes are very short and stand straight up kind of like a zebra and like and are a very dark brown, almost black color. And their tail is the same color as well. They also have the cutest little muzzle markings that are that beautiful creamy off-white color. And they have white eyeliner as well. They are beautiful. <laughs> Is it winged? Is it what? Is is the eyeliner winged? Um, not really. It's just kind of all the way around. If only it was winged. Okay, that's all right. It's a little bit of an outdated style, but you did say they were more ancient, so. Yes, yes. <laughs> and these guys stand about 140 centimeters tall, about 55 inches, again, at the shoulder. How many hands is that? Oh my gosh, I actually wrote it down. It's 14 (laughs) hands. Cool, that means nothing to me, but I wanted to ask. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, 14 (laughs) times 4 is like about 55. Don't make us do math. Stop that. Okay. Oh, okay. Sorry. I mean, I had to do math to figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But they are very, very stocky horses um, with very broad faces as well. There's not very many horses that look like them, which again, kind of helps with the assumption that they are like the last wild horse. The Taki is also listed as endangered by the IUCN. It's not doing great, but it's doing better than it has in the past, and it has been listed since 2011. The IUCN also recommends a population of at least a thousand individuals to be like a stable population. And as of October 2020, do you want to guess how many Taki are in the wild? If they're endangered, is it like a few hundred? Mm-hmm. It's 320. Oh, wow. With okay. 56 of those animals being foals. So they are like reproducing and they're doing fairly well. And even though 300 doesn't sound like a lot, if you delve back into their history, it's pretty impressive because they were once extinct in the wild. Hmm. Yes. So around the year 1880, Russian explorer Nikolai Shavalsky, hence Shavalsky's horse, brought back a gifted hide and skull from the Mongolian people that was 
then unknown to the Western world, and it was put in a museum. Everybody was like, wow, what a beautiful horse. They named it after him. <laughs> and at the turn of the century, all this craze about the Savalsky's horse had collectors taking them from the wild for mounts, zoos, and private collections. Uh, why are mm -hmm. people like this? <laughs> yeah. So, in the 1960s, the last talkie was seen in the wild in a park, kind of. We'll get into it. It's kind of like a park, but not really. The Great Gobi Bee is what it's called. So, 1960s, last talkie, gone. In the 1940s, so 20 years prior, people were finding out that, you know, those wild individuals were starting to decline and in captivity, they were also declining because people just didn't know a lot about them. They didn't know how to keep them. They were really, really hard to keep. And this ended with only 13 breeding individuals left in the world. Oh, wow. That's not even pairs. That's individuals. Individuals. Yes. Ooh. Yes. So, again, people noticed that, you know, wow, there's 13 in captivity and uh, not any, by the time the 1960s came around, in the wild. So breeding for the sake of conservation began, and between 1992 and 2004, 89 Taki were reintroduced into an area called Tal Nature Reserve. So in 2007, the first talkie were released into the Great Gobi Bee, just a few miles from where the last talkie was seen in the wild, which is just, like, makes my heart sore. I don't know. It just is really, really cool conservation story. And people traveled for days to come see the talkie released back into its ancestral grounds because mm -hmm. a lot of the people that came were nomadic people so it's not like they just like and there's no roads so it's not like they hopped in the car and like were there in a couple hours like they traveled for days to come and watch these horses be re-released into the wild wow i've got like chills thinking about what a powerful experience that must have been yes like yeah I'm, I'm holding my chest because I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, so in 2020, the Great Gobi Bee was was actually doubled in size to further protect the Taki and other animals to call this area home. Um, all of these conservation efforts led to again the wild Taki population exceeding 300 for the first time just in 2020. Wow. And there are about 2,500 animals in the world. And that's up from 13 individuals total in the 1940s. Oh my gosh. And they're not, you know, one of those animals that pumps out a ton of babies, no. you know, like you hear stories about that kind of stuff with ferrets and it's like, I mm -hmm. mean, they, they have several kits. So it seems even more amazing to me that a horse is able to yes. be bumped back up into such high numbers. Oh, this is, mm -hmm. this is so so good this it's we're, we're recording this on easter for the record and uh <laughs> this is the best vibes i've had all day oh <laughs> like feel feels very like renewing in the spirit of the celebration of spring and easter you know the, the flowers are budding the taki horses are roaming their ancestral plains oh yes Ooh, i love that <laughs> So I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about those conservation efforts that led to this success because it's really fascinating and it's not like anything that I've heard of people, at least in the United States, doing. Um, really? And I don't know. It's, it's just interesting. So the great Gobi Bee, the bee, there's an A and a B, but... It's also kind of short for biosphere. So the full name is the Great Gobi Biosphere. Oh, okay. Yes, which is a very cool word. And it is known as what is... Oh my gosh. It is known as a biosphere reserve. Have you ever heard of this before? Never. 
Okay. I hadn't either. So biosphere reserves are a very special kind of conservation where they don't just have a piece of land where people can't go and, you know, whatever. It's just for the animals. Biosphere reserves are specifically put in place to foster animal-human relations and humans actually habitate biospheres. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. So many nomadic people still live on this land and sustainably use it. So they're still, you know, grazing their sheep and their goats and their own horses. And it's just a really interesting example of humans and wildlife working together rather than forcing, you know, an either or situation. And it's something that, you know, happened for millennia naturally because, you know, these people, they have to have this land. They can't just destroy it because it's yeah. their whole livelihood. So, or as you, you would know, say in like the Great Plains agricultural reason, region, you can't take it out of production. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So worldwide, um, there are about 257 million people living on biosphere biosphere reserves. And there are 701 biosphere reserves in 129 county countries, including the United States. And I had no idea that this thing even existed. And yet we have 28 biosphere reserves in the United States. What? Where? <laughs> Good question. So <laughs> I didn't write down all of them because there's 28 of them. Um, but wow. two famous Slacker. examples are... <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> two famous examples of biosphere reserves in the U.S. are the Everglades in Florida and Yellowstone. But it also includes places like Denali, Big Ben, Guanica, and a bunch of other ones. So, <laughs> I mean, there's 28 of them, but I've never heard this term before. Yeah, how is Yellowstone a biosphere? Sorry, it's maybe exposing some of my, like, ignorance about national parks, but mm -hmm. I didn't think that any of Yellowstone was, like, privately owned and lived on. Yes, so I think you are correct. So Yellowstone National Park itself, um, the way that biospheres work is that there's often a core piece of it where um, people are not allowed to live, so it's just for the animals. Um, so that is called the Strictly Protected Area, SPA. There's also then a buffer zone around the SPA where people can live and tourism is allowed, all those fun things. Hmm. Around the buffer zone is another zone called the transitional area where there are still some restrictions, but it's a little bit lighter on human activity. So there's three different kind of sections to it. Okay. Can you give an example of what those restrictions might be? Um, so I don't know as, as far as, especially like the buffer zone, I'm not sure exactly. And it might be that it changes depending on the country. Cause again, this is, these are, these exist in 129 different countries. Um, but like, especially with the inner zones, the buffer zone is just outside of the strictly protected area. And so inside the buffer zone, people have to use uh, like sustainable practices. So I don't think things like farming are allowed unless it's like pretty small scale. Um, so it's, it's especially like in Mongolia, it's going to be mostly those nomadic tribes that, you know, don't have as much of a footprint and still are, you know, regulated somewhat, but I don't know the exact specifics. But again, tourism is allowed within that buffer zone. And then once you get out to that tur the transitional area outside of the buffer zone, those restrictions relax a lot. And then it's almost not even obvious that it's there in a lot of e examples that I saw. But I don't think that like big businesses can be there. It's still focused on like small communities of people. Okay. So less urban sprawl, more like yeah. farming communities or or ranching communities, so. that, that sort of thing? Yeah. I'm not 100% sure, but I think so. You're not going to just like plop down 
a couple Walmarts and like, you know, an outdoor shopping mall okay. <laughs> within a biosphere reserve. <laughs> okay. It's really, really cool. But yeah, I, I don't know all the execs. Again, this was a term that I never heard of before I started researching the talkie. And I was like, what is a biosphere reserve? So if you want to learn more, um, the UNESCO website, U-N-E-S-C-O dot org slash biosphere is a great resource for you. Oh, we'll put it right in there. the show notes. So, but it's really cool. And they have, they actually have on their website, like a map of all the different biospheres. And there's a ton in Mexico, especially the Southern part of Mexico. Um, but I don't know, 714 biospheres out there and neither one of us had ever heard of this before. <laughs> wow. That's insane. Oh, for the record, it's en.unesco.org. Oh, yeah. If you want it in English. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. I have stuff to read, but we're still talking about horses. So um, <laughs> sorry for the detour. Uh, I will read this no. later. <laughs> I appreciate it. Cause I'm just glad that I just wasn't like ignorant on this whole biosphere thing. Cause it's so cool. And like they specifically, like if you, I don't want to, I don't want to get too, hung up in the weeds but if you go on their website like it specifically is talking about you know fostering that relationship with the people and having the people being like in charge of the conservation of their own land and you know teaching those people how to you know protect their land and like it's very human focused conservation which is smart (laughs) yeah like they literally say on their website under, you know, what what is a biosphere reserve? That it's a learning place mm-hmm. for sustainable development. Yeah. Like, that's so cool. Like the the that not only is the sustainable development part a huge part of it, but that it's a learning place. Like it's a place to yes. to learn and to to grow and to develop new ideas and to Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely. Like it's it's so fascinating. So along the something that kind of goes hand in hand with this biosphere ideology, I guess, (laughs) was this really cool paper that I found published in 2012 called A Collaborative Approach for Estimating Terrestrial Wildlife Abundance. So they actually had local nomadic people in Mongolia help count various animals throughout the Great Gobi. And this included 50 sample points and the counts were carried out simultaneously. So at the same time, to try to get a better idea of just how many animals were using this land. Because again, you know, we have things like the Mongolian gazelles where it's like, do we have 800,000 of them? Do we have a million and a half? Who Hmm. knows? (laughs) Because it's such a big expanse of land that it's extremely difficult to get accurate numbers. So they you know, are using the people that are already living there to, you know, get involved with the science, which is so cool. They mention in this article that incorporating local people into science like this, quote, creates vested interest in conservation by the people who are most influential in and most affected by the outcomes, end quote. So, like, scientists are realizing that, you know, how important this is, which is just, it fills me with such joy. So in addition to, you know, bringing in the local people to foster this conservation story, another really, really cool conservation tactic that is used is something called the Great Gobi Six. So this is essentially a bundle of animals, some more charismatic than others, that are deemed high priority and in need a need of conservation that live in the Gobi. So the Taki, obviously, is one of them. Do you want to try to guess at least like one of the other five? I the Saiga antelope. Get. Yay, the Saiga. <laughs> and probably the Mongolian gazelle. It's actually not. Oh, okay. Yeah. The goitered gazelle is part of the big six. Wait, goiter? Goitered. Like a goiter. Like it has a goiter. The males inflate their... I don't think they inflate. The (sighs) males have like this goiter that develops when they're... when it's in breeding season. So... That is so cute. Is it? (laughs) (laughs) It's something, that's for sure. 
So uh. the Taki, the Saiga antelope, the goitered gazelle, the wild Bactrian camel, the ah. Gobi bear, <laughs> of course, and the Kulan or wild ass are the big six. So I just I should have known. I know you should have known. <laughs> <laughs> but I love this idea of bundling, you know, these big six animals where, you know, naturally by preserving land for the Taki, you're also saving these other ones. But now they have a reason for all these different scientists and conservationists to work together because any act at saving, you know, any six of them can be used to help all of them. And it's easier mm -hmm. to find support for conservation projects and money and all that stuff. So yeah. genius. I love it. That's fantastic. Yeah. But huh. I am just so impressed by my, my, oh my gosh. I am just so impressed by Mongolia's conservation efforts and I so very much wish that America would take notes and, you know, mm -hmm. save some of our animals that are in dire need. Yeah, especially when, you know, there's a lot of species that have similar conservation needs, mm -hmm. but we're so focused on individual things and like little tiny pieces of land that we're not really mm -hmm. doing the kind of large scale conservation work that would actually benefit grassland animals that need that large-scale conservation. Yes, and especially in America, we have that either-or mentality. So we mm -hmm. have these parks where either people just aren't allowed or it's very highly regulated, and, you know, that space is for the animals, and, like, everything else is for the people, but there's no reason why we can't coexist together. Yeah. Ugh. <sighs> yeah, now I'm sad. <laughs> I know. Let's go back to the, the uh, talkie. It's fine. Well, it's, it's fine. just it's like, fine. you know, even our, our national parks that are set aside, like, and our, you know, Bureau of Land Management stuff, like, all of them are mm -hmm. sold to people so they can develop it. Like, yes. We, we don't even for do a cheap. good job of setting aside an, uh, land specifically for mm -hmm. wildlife. Like, all, yeah, all of those absolutely. federal lands are rented out for very, very cheap prices for any kind of development. Or mm -hmm. not any, but for so much development. Yeah, not even like human development, but like things that we know destroy the land. <laughs> yeah, right. And that contribute to loss of wildlife. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so <laughs> going going back to the talkie. Okay. <laughs> these guys, like I said, they're doing surprisingly well. And especially now that they've been reintroduced, they are even more revered, if that's even possible, by the people <laughs> that live there. And there's some really interesting kind of side effects to that that are, that are good. So I found this paper in 2017. Um, it's by Petra Kaczynski, and it was published in Scientific Reports. And it looked at the diet of the pre-extinction horses with the modern-day ones, and they found that they were eating differently. <gasps> the reintroduced ones are eating differently? Yes. Oh, no. Okay. So the, you know, pre-1960s horses were grazers in the summer when grass was plenty, but turned to a more browsing lifestyle in the winter. Whereas current wild talkie are grazers year-round. They are oh. eating that grass year-round. Why? I know, good question. <laughs> so they hypothesize in that paper that this year-round grazing lifestyle is actually a very good sign. Because previously, talkie were kind of pushed into less fertile lands in the winter by people and other animals and things like that. So grazing year-round is a preferred lifestyle that they were not able to do in the past, but they can do now. And that is in large part because of conservation efforts and because of, you know, how revered this animal is and all of this education that's going towards people of Mongolia and around the world. Oh, that's so awesome. I know. <laughs> so it's, I don't know, it's just so cool. And that societal shift to respect the talkie 
now more than ever is probably going to end up what makes the talkie a true conservation success story because we can call it a conservation success story right now but there's barely over 300 and we need at least a thousand in order to have a stable population so we're better than we were but we still have a lot of room to go so and it sounds like they've given these animals the space and the type of habitat that's going to support those numbers as they continue growing. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Wow. And with that human pressure lessened, they still have some threats. Specifically, winters in the steppe can be extremely harsh. So in the 2009 to 2010 winter actually caused the wild population to go from 123 individuals to a mere 49. Since then, there has been a really steady increase in numbers, but, you know, keeping the wild population numbers high and healthy is extremely important to help them survive these natural tragedies that they are going to encounter. Mm this respect for that talkie is so important going forward for conservation and more and more organizations are like i said working more closely with the people that have called this land home for generations the international talkie group plans actually to soon hand over their entire project to their mongolian partners that exist right now and they will just be available you know on the sidelines for advice and support Ah, Just so cool. Fantastic. Yes. You know, on their website, they mentioned that, quote, more than 80% of local nomads earn between 75 and 100% of their income from animal husbandry. So these people are, you know, very dedicated to keeping this land alive because it is their livelihood. (laughs) Like they cannot lose it. And, you know, the Taki is seen as a symbol of the wild steppe and, you know, having the talkie means that we have good wildlife and good, you know, environment that can support not only the talkie and the Gobi bear and the Saiga, but the people. So it's just, uh, it's so good. So hopefully the talkie and the Gobi are around for many generations to come. And by preserving the talkie, we preserve so much more. The habitat required by other endangered species, the special nomadic way of life for so many people, and just this amazing history of horses and the talkie and, you know, the Eurasian steppe as a whole. And that story is so varied and complex, and I only just barely scratched the surface in this episode, but I hope that you know, you at least learned a little bit, <laughs> reader and a uh, reader, no, <laughs> Rachel and dear listener, and are inspired to maybe, you know, love horses and do some more research into this really unique ecosystem. I'm not gonna lie, um, I don't love horses. Wow, still, do but you like them? Oh yeah, obviously. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. I, I feel like I've more fallen in love just with this overall conservation story and the history of yeah. the animal and the way that it's been conserved and this like ecosystem level approach to conservation mm-hmm. that is working so well for this species, obviously, which yeah. is so important to the people that are so dedicated to conserving it, but has also just benefited this whole ecosystem of creatures that is, you know. Yeah under threat and uh, I, this, what a what a fantastic story i'm <laughs> kind of surprised at how much i loved this entire episode nicole <laughs> oh i'm so glad yeah and i you know i didn't even really talk about the natural history of you know the talkie like it's interesting but i think the conservation story is just so fascinating exactly anybody can go like read the factoids about this mm-hmm. animal this this was the better story Thank you. Thank you. Also, just as a side note, Uh I know I kept talking about the Gobi, which in common culture, a lot of people's minds is a desert, but a lot of it is grassland. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. So it can be like true desert down to like only two inches of rain, but a lot of the Gobi is very much grassland. So 
Yeah. Just throwing that out there. Grassland erasure is a serious problem we're trying to combat. It is. The Arctic does a bad job of that too. Uh, a lot of tundra mm. landscapes are technically grasslands. So, meh. 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 <laughs> okay. <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, well, thanks, Nicole, and thanks everyone else for listening to The Best Biome. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. And if you leave us a review on Podchaser, just remember, uh, they will donate 25 cents to Meals on Wheels for that review, which is pretty cool. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us a lot. Uh, Give us a follow on the social medias or leave us a voice message, text, whatever. That's all. So uh, we'll, we'll see you guys next week. Kansa Prairie is a biosphere reserve. It is? Yeah. How, how the fuck did we not know that Kansa Prairie is a biosphere reserve? I don't know. Like, it's literally a UNESCO biosphere reserve. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, that's wild. What the fuck? <laughs> I feel like such an idiot. Okay. No, no, no. Okay, I'm so sorry. I love Kansa. I, I am so sorry. No, you're I'm gonna fine. Stop. I'm going to stop. Okay. <laughs>